Hey friends, Ashton Gustafson here and welcome back to another episode of Good, True and Beautiful. Hope you are doing well. We are being joined today um, by an author and the host uh, of the Next Right Thing podcast. She's got a book coming out very soon called The Next Right Thing, a simple, soulful practice for making life decisions. That being said, Emily Freeman is joining us and Emily, uh, welcome to the conversation. Thanks, Ashton. I'm so glad to be here. Hey, so um, I've really enjoyed getting to know your work. Um, my wife was familiar with you. My mom listens to your podcast. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of an outsider coming in here. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, it's totally so much of the conversation we have here at Good, True, and Beautiful. When you kind of introduce yourself and your work in the world, where do you begin? You know, I often say that I stand at the intersection of um, faith and creativity. And so you've said it already. I'm an author and a podcast host, but I feel like mostly I'm a curious listener. Mm. And one of the ways I sort of express that is I, I really feel I've created a job for myself basically to sort of help people create space for their soul to breathe so that they can discern their next right thing in love. I feel like I Oftentimes people tell me, and so now I'm, I've started to adopt that I try to put into words thoughts that people don't have time to think, especially as they relate to faith, creativity, and life with God. Beautiful. So the next right thing, I, I guess this has been a podcast project of yours for a while, and now a book that's kind of come to life. When when did this whole conversation begin? Was this Was the next right thing birthed out of you struggling through the next right thing, or kind of you know, tell us where this came from. It really was. You know, the short answer is because I started to notice the power of unmade decisions mm -hmm. in my own life yeah. um, and in the lives of the people around me. I, for me, when a decision has to be made, my senses are heightened. I'm more aware of myself. I'm more uh, prone to look for the arrows of, of direction and clarity. I'm also more interested in maybe God's voice and what other people have to say and their advice and opinions. I think that when we have an unmade decision kind of hanging over our heads, a lot of us respond. Some of us respond, we want to get it out of the way. We want to make it and just you know, and oftentimes that can lead to regret because we make a decision maybe before it even needs to be made. But I do think it overall, um, it it allows us to value reflection, uh, visioneering, and we just pay more attention to our lives. So I, I became really fascinated with the way that God used unmade decisions to form me spiritually. And I just wanted to sort of explore that more. Interesting. You know, as I read your book, um, as all great books are, they're 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 books of awakening, of awareness, um, and, and your words were really a lot of self reflection. Um, but they th this awareness, I think you are trying to get the the reader to more peace, more clarity, more purpose, more rest, more renewal, more sustainability. And you begin the book with kind of you get this not through addition but by subtraction. Soul minimalism, I think, is uh, what you referred to it as. Um, and I loved so much of your writing in this about, you know, the decluttering of your house is like de de the decluttering of your soul, something along those lines. Um, what do you mean when you talk about becoming a soul minimalist? You know, there's a there's a writer and a blogger, his name's Joshua Becker, and he talks a lot about minimalism. I know we, you know, it's everywhere, but he has a blog called Becoming Minimalist. And I listened to him on a podcast interview while I was at the gym, actually. And as I was listening to him talk about all the ways that we, um, you know, we kind of can let our house get out of control, which is why we, 
you know, sometimes we snap and we're like, it's spring, it's a Saturday, get the trash bag, kids, we're throwing it all away. You know, we kind of lose our heads about it. But as I was there at the gym that day, listening to his, you know, him talking about how we always have input into our homes, but if we aren't careful, we really don't have a regular habit of output. The input is automatic. The output um, has to sort of be, we have to set an intention. And I thought, you know, as I'm in there in the gym, I mean, not only is that true for our homes, it's true for us in all of our lives. So I'm at the gym and there's like three people next to me on a treadmill and there's people in front of me, there's people in the pool behind me and it's all this activity, not to mention like 40 TVs, you know, (laughs) on different stations. And I thought this is like such a a tiny picture of our life and the speed at which we travel. And so in many ways, um, if I look at my interior life as synonymous with my, uh, my home, my external home, but then there's our internal place where we really live, there are there's constant input with interactions with people with frustration regret anxiety all the things happening on the inside all that is automatic but where is the intentional letting go or output or or putting down things we no longer need for our journey and so that to me is is the process of what it means to become a soul minimalist yeah, it, it's really cultivating this interior spaciousness, right? Where you have capacity to get bird's eye above yourself, above your that's soul. Right. Um, I think that's the um, that's our work today. Is our plates are so full that we don't carve out that space for that capacity. Um, one of the little just little nuggets that you had in the book was about taming technology. Um, and I think one of the lines you said was, "We're letting everyone else's agenda live for free in the sacred." Uh, space of our creative mind. Brilliant sentence, by the way. Um, Talk to me about some of these little tools that you've used to make sure that every time you get an email, your phone doesn't blow up, or every time someone likes something on Instagram, you're not notified. Um, I, I think we're all waking up to how much of this technology really is just playing in the background of our minds, and we don't even know it. It's so true. And you know, I I think there's so many good things that come from having a phone in our pocket, but I also think if we're not careful, uh, there's a lot of not great things that come. And and just like back in the day, no one knew how bad smoking was for us, and now we all know. I wonder 20 years from now, 30 years from now, what we'll be saying. Can you believe we used to, whatever it is, having to do with technology? But one thing that is just super practical that I just a long time ago did. And many people who are listening might automatically do this, but I don't have notifications for anything. I'll turn on my phone. In fact, I, I, it's foreign to me to think of like having a Instagram note, you know, I don't need to know if someone hits like on a photo, you know, and these are simple things um, that just might be the phone, your phone might just automatically have notifications set up and you don't even think about it. But I think that's just one simple way. And there's, you know, a hundred other ways to, to realize that, oh, there's these little distractions pull us away from um, a train of thought a conversation of sitting in the moment. It's just this constant um, feeling of code switching between what I'm doing and then what my phone is, is demanding or saying, or just a, you know, if I want to know the news, I can go look that up. I don't need it to automatically show up. It's just sort of beginning to pay attention to where's the automatic inputs that I can control because there's so much in life that we can't control. 
Yeah, and and how many of these notifications, and this is just one category, but they they sneak up on us, right? Right, And all of a sudden we feel overworked, overwhelmed, burned out, all of these words that we use. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have no idea how much of our bandwidth and willpower are being taken up by these really, really small things. That's Um, right. So uh, the book really is about um, the whole process, uh, the practice and the process of decision-making. Um, and sometimes when we're making decisions, we really, um, one of the hardest things about making them is that we haven't, we haven't found the right vernacular. We haven't named the narrative, as you say. Um, and I thought this was a, probably one of the biggest points of the book that I wanted us to, to chat through today, um, is naming the narrative, um, kind of getting to the thing underneath the thing. And you, you did a brilliant job of breaking this down in the book. But for our listeners, what are you getting at when you're talking about, hey, some of the challenges you may have right now in decision making may be just because you haven't properly named what needs to be named? Ronald Rollheiser says that uh, when we get into trouble whenever we don't name things properly. Hmm. And I think that is so true in small and large areas of our lives but especially when it comes to making decisions, because I think when it, you know, there are decisions that we sometimes make based off of the way we've always done it, based off of what other people might think or expect. And we don't take the time or we don't have the capacity to figure out what it is maybe we really want or where we might feel God calling us into, um, partially because I think we're afraid of that word desire. Um, but, but naming our desires that is a, such a crucial and important thing to know. And it, just as an example, um, you know, our, what we want is what we want, whether or not we're willing to name it, mm. but it will affect us and impact us one way or another. And if we don't take the time and space um, to to name what it is we most long for in the presence of God, then it will come out sideways one way or the other. Um, and so, just this idea of naming. Now, naming is different from uh, explaining yeah, or di- yeah. diagnosing. Yeah. And I, I remember um, a quick story about that. I threw my back out. I don't know. As you get older, I guess that's something we do, <laughs> right? We, I like lift it up from, you know, and, and all of a sudden I couldn't hardly stand up straight. So I remember that day it was so frustrating because I'm like, well, what is, why? What's wrong with my back? Is it, am I overworked? Did I, did I, you know, pop something. I didn't know what was going on, but a couple of weeks later, it sort of worked itself out. So I went to see a, you know, I went to get a massage and, and I told her, you know, it was the left side that, you know, really bothering me. But as she worked on my back, she noticed that it was the right side that actually seemed to be more troubled. And this really concerned me. And so I sort of demanded from her, I'm like, well, what, what do you think that means? What is that bad? And she very calmly said to me, it's not bad. It's just information. Mm. And I realized in my life, I'm constantly looking for, um, I confuse this process of naming with a, uh, explaining or a diagnosing. Yeah. And I think, you know, when it comes to paying attention and, and life with God, I think more often we're invited to um, be have a posture of curiosity um, and holding that in his presence and listening for direction and wisdom rather than uh, name, uh, explaining it, diagnosing it and moving on because there's so much about the diagnosis that then feels like we have some control. Um, but the naming helps me to recognize what the thing is. And then 
wait for just what my next right move might be rather than come up with a five-year plan that's going to either prevent this thing from happening again or if it's something good, guarantee that I can maintain it. Right, right. Have you found that this this posture of curiosity um, helps you distinguish or, or separate fact from fiction in some of the narrative that's going on in our heads? Um, like, can you can you kind of when you enter your moments or your days or, or wherever you are in these decisions with curiosity, you can then start to stand back from them a bit and go, oh no no no, that's that's an opinion I have or that's an emotion I'm feeling, and and yes. these are the facts. This is true. This is actually what I'm thinking. And maybe you know, I know a lot of times the reason we don't make decisions is we get, because we think they're going to affect other people or what other people may mm-hmm. be thinking. Um, and I think that sometimes. Uh, curiosity leads you to this aha of like, oh, they weren't even thinking about me in the first place. <laughs> I'm right, not even on their right. radar of some of these decisions that I think I'm making. <laughs> it's so true. And and I love how you mentioned that about the, the facts or the fiction. Um, I, I think there is a distinction that needs to be made when it comes to decision making that many of us lead with our head, others of us lead with our heart, and some of us lead with our intuition. And I think our most soulful decisions come when we're able to integrate all three of those. One is not more valuable or important than the other. We are whole people. But I think some of us, for example, I'm more, I'm more of a heart person, but I have tended to discount or, or uh, you know, invalidate when I have certain feelings about things. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's a cultural thing or uh, just a growing up thing that I just sort of learned. No, the head, the head is the most, you know, logical. That's how you make decisions. Um, it's all important information. I think this process, this practice of being curious helps me to lay it all out there um, on the table and let both the emotion, the facts, whether they're the, the emotions might not be telling me the truth about the situation, but they still represent something that is true within me. And it's important for me to acknowledge it because what is unacknowledged cannot be healed. Um, and so I think that process of curiosity helps me, like you said, to see the full picture and to value each part and then to sort of move forward with uh, armed with real information that I need to move forward. Yeah, that's good. That's real good. Um, So you mentioned this question um, that we should all ask before every hard decision. Uh, And that question is, am I being led by love or pushed by fear? What was it that led you um, to this realization that this is a, uh, the question we must ask before decisions? Well, I was actually, that question was asked of me in the midst of trying to make a big decision. Mm-hmm. I was invited to go to the Philippines with Compassion International to write as a, you know, an, as an observer and to see what they were doing in the lives of um, children living in poverty over there in, in the Philippines. And I was really scared. I was scared to go. And this is just a real practical, um, you know, example of this. But I remember I was scared to go for reasons, some that were valid, some that were kind of not. But there you go. It was fear in a lot of ways. But I do remember the trip leader as I was trying to make my decision on the phone. He called. We talked about it. And he said, Emily, there may be a lot of good reasons for you to say no to this trip, but please don't let fear be one of them. And when he said that, it immediately became very clear to me, oh, this, I can't think of any good reasons 
that don't have to do with fear. Mm. And the decision became very easy for me after that. I did go on the trip. I don't think it would have been wrong for me to stay home. I think God would have been with me in either space. But but I do think that was a clarifying question. And sometimes that's the only question we have to ask when it comes to a hard decision is, am I being led by love or pushed by fear? A lot of times we can discern. Sometimes it's real clear if it's one or the other. Yeah, no doubt. Um, there's all sorts of language. You read books like Essentialism, The One Thing, uh, Atomic yeah. Habits, things like this, that, that all revolve around the idea of decision fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, basically our willpower basically is like a battery, you know, once the day begins. That's right. Um, you've got this phrase, and I, I thought it was great, cultivating presence by absence. And basically, I think your argument here was... Um, Sometimes we just we blindly take every opportunity that comes our way <laughs> from this from the smallest thing of like, hey, do you want to go have coffee to, yeah. hey, do our families want to go on vacation together? Like there's this huge space in between both of these commitments, um, but they all take bandwidth and capacity and willpower from us. Uh, and really, it's it's a the conversation revolves around decision fatigue. What do you mean, uh, or what have you, you know, to the people that are listening today, how would you kind of just enter in this conversation about monitoring your opportunities, what you've learned, uh, and how you've found, um, really by taking back some of your yeses, um, you've been able to have uh, more meaningful, more peaceful, more joyful yeses uh, in your days? Well, that phrase, choosing our absence, comes from a book by um, Kevin DeYoung called Crazy Busy, along the same lines of essentialism and some of those other books. Such great books out there these days about about this topic. But I I do think there is – it's an important question to ask ourselves when we're invited into something because I think our first – and it does depend some on our personality and our natural bent towards how we view the world and where we get our energy from and introvert, extrovert and all of those things. But I think in general, a lot of us walk around every day with a with a secret question. And our question is, do I have value? Am I wanted? Do I belong? And there's something in us that when we're invited to be a part of something, whether that is on a volunteer basis, whether it's a job we're being asked to do, um, to come travel somewhere, to uh, you know, come to this Bible study or do whatever the thing is that we're being invited to do that someone else phrases as an opportunity for us. Um, there's a tendency to want to say yes to it. And our motivation for that yes could be for a hundred different reasons, mm-hmm. depending on what it is that we're bent towards. Um, for me, I'm often wondering, you know, do I belong here? Do, Am, am I invited? Even places that I'm invited to, sometimes I wonder if I'm invited. <laughs> and everybody has, you know, do, am I significant here? Or, you know, am I welcome here? Um, and so I think those deep questions that we have, that we all carry around with us, it's important to, this life of reflection, it's important to know what they are, because if not, we will constantly be um, saying yes or no to things based on this unanswered question. And so, I think that this phrase, this is be a great opportunity. I think the the encouragement that I would have for people in deciding yes or no to do something or not would be to always be able to finish that sentence. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say yes to this opportunity th- to this because it would be a great opportunity to and then be able to finish the sentence. And if you can't finish the sentence, not only in English words like, this would be a great opportunity to see the world or to make $1 million or to be with my family, whatever the thing is. But then also that phrase that you finish the sentence with has to also be something that it's a season of life for. Mm -hmm. 
because it could be that this would be a great opportunity for me to, you know, see a new part of the world. Yet my kids are graduating from high school and it's just not the right time, you know? So I think continuing out that sentence as far as we can and doing it in the context of our actual life, um, is really important. Another question you can ask yourself is, if this opportunity were called out into a room full of people, is it something that I would raise my hand to volunteer for? And that's one way for me to recognize, is this something I really want to do? It doesn't mean that we're going to say no to everything um, unless it's, you know, truly fits all those categories. But I think the key is just don't call it a great opportunity. Don't fool yourself into thinking, you're missing out on something. Just call it what it is. It's volunteer. It's it's a glorified favor. It's a a job you're not getting paid for. You know, whatever the thing is, just let's let's name the thing. Back to the naming. Name it for what it is, because that will help us frame um, whether or not we feel good about that decision, whether or not we feel like we're missing out. Because sometimes that fear of missing out, that's a real strong motivator for some of us. Yeah. And it can cause regret and this feeling of like, oh, I missed my my chance. But when you look at it, you're like, well, but that wasn't really an opportunity for me right now. Yeah. And that's an important distinction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's huge to even, even just the practice of pausing before yeah. every opportunity. Um, and, and we all probably have our own specific questions, you know, that we should be asking ourselves, will this bring me joy? Um, Mm -hmm. on the other side of it, will I be, will I be glad that I did this or am I going to regret it? Um, but the, but the thing underneath the thing, the naming the narrative here is, am I only saying yes to this opportunity because some, something in me is getting verification that, that I need, right? Um, and I think your argument here is careful with that, right? You shouldn't just say yes to all these opportunities because that's place, you know, within you is having a conversation around love or worthiness or verification or whatever that may be, or validation, if you will. Um, and so, yeah, beautiful practice. Um, well, the last, the last point that really spoke to me was, um, about clarity. And I I think that the hardest thing we have in decision-making, uh, is feeling like, this is the direction I'm going and getting clear. Uh, but you kind of make the argument through uh, Marie Forleo's quote that clarity cannot be rushed. Clarity only comes from engagement. And I love that idea that clarity doesn't just happen in real time. S- gradually, we make decisions and slowly we start to find ourselves in clarity. Um, what have you found out about this conversation around clarity and kind of that it doesn't necessarily come, uh, you can't rush it, that it only comes by engagement? Well, you said it so well right there, and I have little to add to it, but I will just say when I talk with people about making decisions, I've often gotten the sense, and I felt this way too, that people are waiting for clarity in order to move. And I think Marie Forleo makes a great point that often clarity comes as we engage it. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times I didn't, I didn't feel a piece. People often say, oh, I just want to feel a piece about it. Well, I don't feel a piece until after I've made it. And sometimes days after it's not always immediate. Now, sometimes we do, but if we wait for that, we might be waiting past our cue. And so I think that that clarity, um, though we can long for it and pray for it and hope for it, sometimes we can't wait for it. And that uh, sometimes when I think I'm waiting on God, he's actually waiting on me to make a move. <laughs> Absolutely. Love that. Yeah, it's um, <clears throat> clarity. It doesn't just, you don't just snap your fingers and it happens. That's right. Um, step by step, day by day, 
inch by inch. I, I forget it was Emerson or someone like that that made the comment about gradually then suddenly. I feel like I quote it every day. Uh, grad, <laughs> gradually, gra- you know, I think his quote was like, how do you go bankrupt gradually then suddenly? Um, but, you know, I mean, uh, the, the truth is, look at your life. How's your life happened? Gradually yes. then suddenly. Gradually we make small decisions. Suddenly we find ourselves, um, you know, living this life by design that, that, uh, we can enjoy that brings enthusiasm and that we can live, uh, with a deep, deep sense of contentment and acceptance. So, um, well, beautiful. Well, uh, question, when does the book come out? The book releases April 2nd. April 2nd. Okay. Yep. And maybe for some of our listeners that, uh, were just introduced to you today, what's the best way for us to like follow you and everything that you're doing? Well, online, you can find me at emilypfreeman.com. And that's also where I am on Twitter and Instagram, Emily P. Freeman. Instagram's probably my favorite. As well, I release a weekly, short weekly episode. I'm, I'm, it's relentlessly, hopefully relentlessly helpful, mercifully short. Each <laughs> podcast episode of It's the Next Right Thing podcast, you can find it, you know, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, each episode is less than 15 minutes, usually less than around, it's around 10 minutes, um, just as sort of serves as a speed bump in your day to help you um, clear a little space and dis- in order to discern your next right thing. So that's the Next Right Thing podcast. Beautiful. Well, hey, Emily, on behalf of all of us, thanks so much for your good and necessary work. Super grateful uh, for you joining us here today. And uh, hey, down the road, maybe love to have you back on again, have another conversation. <laughs> thanks so much. <laughs> all right, we'll talk soon. Hey, before you go, don't forget to hit subscribe right there on your phone. That's probably where you're listening. Uh, And if you enjoyed this, would you mind leaving us a review? One of the things that we're wanting to do is get this information out to as many people as we can. And we are finding that uh, when people leave good, true, and beautiful reviews, uh, that helps us get this information out more and more to people all across the world. I do not take it lightly. Uh, that you invite me to ride shotgun with you in your car. Uh, You allow these conversations to be a part of your jogs. You allow these conversations to be a part of the communities and families and businesses that you've been entrusted. Uh, I do not take that lightly at all, and I am thrilled uh, that you have joined us here at this table, at this conversation. There's always a seat left. There's always room for more, uh, and we are just so grateful for you guys joining us here at Good, True, and Beautiful. And as you approach this week, may you pause by the orchid, listen to the bluebirds sing, and be love. Thank you.